By the way, what a blessing it is to be a part of this church. Amen? Amen. It's good to have you guys here with us, Tim and Jenny. We uh, pray for you. We love you. We miss you guys. And we are cheering you on as you uh, are our hands and feet there in Poland. And uh, may God continue to use you uh, for, his, for his glory. So a number of years ago now, at this point, the authors David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, two bright young evangelical leaders, both of whom at that time were associated with a group that you might have heard, the Barna Group, which was founded in the mid-1980s and is... Um, uh, International headquarters is in Texas. These two men soberingly concluded the following that modern day Christianity no longer seems Christian. Ouch. Just let that sting for a moment. In reality, the statement was actually the chilling verdict, be it accurate or inaccurate, fair or unfair, rendered by thousands of outsiders. That is to say, non-Christians, many of them, in fact, young people whose perspectives on Christianity had changed drastically, drastically over the years, and sadly, not for the better. For example, in their book entitled Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity, Kinnaman and Lyons outlined six broad, potentially devastating themes which spelled major problems for those who hope to reach this present generation for Jesus Christ. That is, instead of being seen any longer as honest, gracious, loving, sacrificial, generous, and peace-loving, the six big takeaways now defining Christians by those respondents in their surveys were that Christians are now hypocritical. Too focused on simply getting converts, anti-homosexual, sheltered, that is to say, out of touch with society, too political or highly judgmental. They write, quote, millions of young people are mentally and emotionally disengaging from Christianity, and especially away from the theologically conservative expressions of the faith. They write, as Christians, we are widely mistrusted by a skeptical generation. We are at a turning point for Christianity in America. If we do not wake up to these realities and respond in appropriate godly ways, we risk being increasingly marginalized and losing further credibility with millions upon millions of people. Close quote. And friends, that was 15 years ago that they wrote it. Since their book, things, in my opinion, have gone from bad to worse. Well, friends, in a similar way, the Church of the Living God, back in ancient Ephesus, in the middle of the first century AD, was evidently having its own hard time keeping up its image in the eyes of outsiders in their culture. So much so, in fact, that in Ephesians 4, verse 17, the first verse that Mark read for us just moments ago, we hear the Apostle Paul say, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You've heard the phrase, when in Rome, 
do as the Romans. Well, apparently there were some well-intending but woefully misguided followers of Jesus Christ who lived by the mantra, when in Ephesus, well, you know the rest, do as the, Eph- the Ephesians. That is, they were acting unchristianly. But Paul's point here is that if, and granted that's a big if, if we have been bought by the blood of Jesus, and if we've been brought by grace into God's holy family, then listen, we can no longer live as if, as if this world is our home. That's simply not an option any longer for us. There is no such thing as truly unchristian Christianity. That is a, simply a gross contradiction in terms. Understand, friends, that Ephesians 4.17 actually marks a major turning point in this important New Testament letter. We are now barreling towards the end of Ephesians. After three tremendous and soaring chapters on Christian doctrine, from our election in Christ to God's sealing us by His Spirit, to our being redeemed by grace and through faith, to the mystery of the church, all these glorious doctrines tumbling out of Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. And upon, after half a chapter, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, on the church's wonderful unity amid diversity, we've spoken of that in recent weeks, the balance of this incredible book, Ephesians 4, 17, all the way to chapter 6, verse 24, the very uh, last verse of this book, will go on to underscore a single theme, namely the need for Christian purity and for Christian holiness today what it's all about. What's supposed to be different now about us as God's people in Christ? What's new with you? How does grace grow or often show forth in us as God's true disciples? What does the genuine walk of faith in Jesus Christ really look like? Well, friends, for those of us who are in Christ, in Jesus, by faith. Paul reminds us that we are to grow up in the Christian walk by putting on the truths of Christ and of his life-changing gospel to work in our daily living. Why? Because nobody is ever going to reach the lost for Jesus if they keep on living like the world. Let me say that again. No one, and actually this is the reason why after we're saved, we're left here. No one is ever going to reach the lost for Jesus if they keep on living like the world. Ephesians 4.17 stands atop the entire closing section of Ephesians, calling us as Christian, as Christian disciples, away from the futility of our former sin-filled walk of dead works, we looked at that in Ephesians 2, and in turn towards a humble, more Christ-dependent life of faith and a truly spirit-enabled walk of good works which God has saved us for and actually prepared us for in advance. Ephesians 4.17 is for you and it is for me. In many ways, Ephesians 4 17 to 24, our passage this morning really is like a spiritual PET scan. A spiritual PET scan for us this morning. 
That is here the Apostle Paul is going to helpfully diagnose the real problem and prescribe for us the true solution. For those of us who find ourselves from day to day struggling to be in the world but not of the world. Anybody know that struggle? I think if we're honest, we all know that struggle. How do we be in the world but not of the world? Paul says, I have something for you, church. And that's what we find here. What exactly does worldliness look like? You and I know it. We see it all around us. We see it in us at times. And where does it come from? At the same time, where does godliness come from? And what does that look like? What does the life of authentic faith require of us as the people of God? Ephesians 4, 17 and following, all the way to the end, spells it out in black and white. Well, listen, in terms of the structure of our passage, just notice with me, with Bibles open, beginning in verse 17, notice uh, that our passage this morning, that we get a glimpse here, really of two things. On the one hand, the first part, 17 to 19, we actually have an image of the devastatingly harmful and even deadly effects of sin upon the mind and the heart and even the actions or the appetites of the unregenerate. The unregenerate meaning those that have not been born again from above, those that are not spirit-born or saved. Paul addresses the mind and the heart and the actions, the mind and the heart, and then it's working out in the actions. Paul has something to say about each of these. In essence, here, this spiritual assessment, this PET scan reveals in each in turn the cancer of man's carnality and the blindness of our unbelief and the calcification even of humanity's spiritual arteries apart from true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the image is horrifying spiritually for us. We are not just in trouble. We are dead spiritually. Man is not just in trouble. Apart from God's grace, man is dead on arrival. And that's the, the bleak but honest picture we need to grapple with in verses 17 to 19 of Ephesians 4. Another way we might put it this morning is that Dr. Paul's grim prognosis includes three spiritually fatal facts which are given here to sober up truly fallen people and shake up a misguided church. On the one hand, apart from Jesus, men and women's minds are spiritually darkened. The lights are out. And therefore, they are unable to see the light of God in the face of Jesus. To borrow a phrase from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul will powerfully declare, And if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory uh, of Christ, who is the image of God. Things are doubly bad for the unregenerate. Not only are they dead spiritually, but Satan is actively working to deceive them. There's a great problem here. But then secondly, again, apart from grace, not only is our mind darkened, but actually Paul goes on to say people's hearts are sadly hardened. 
to the things of God. That is to say there is no spiritual pulse or life in mankind apart from from divine grace. Every heartbeat of man is hatred against God before Jesus comes home and renovates the soul. And then thirdly, really as a conclusion or a consequence of both of these, a a darkened mind and a hardened heart, the Bible says that the unsaved are given over, uh, desensitized even to the wicked cravings of their flesh. And Paul says they are greedy to practice practice every every form of impurity. Unregenerate men and women, and such were some of you, can't get enough wickedness. An insatiable appetite for selfishness. That is where we were. And friend, if you're not in Christ, it's where you are. The outside might look okay, but on the inside we are rotting corpses spiritually. Paul holds up the mirror of God's law and word and says... There's a problem. There is a problem. So taken together, this condition of fallen humanity could not be more perilous. Again, it's not just a little bitty problem. There's death reeking out of this text. And further, this could not be more out of step with how we should be walking as a church. We'll come to that in just a moment. The lost are darkened, hardened, and shamelessly unsatisfied in their carnal appetites of their fallen flesh. And we need to feel the weight of this passage. Such that we can conclude here, Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 specifically, again, holds up the mirror of God's word, the condition of the unregenerate man, and declares people outside of faith in Christ are seriously and terminally ill spiritually. They need to be resuscitated by Christ. On the other hand, here's some good news. That's the bad news, and you know the gospel includes both bad news and good news. We actually run into big problems when we try to share the gospel only in terms of good news. People don't know what they're being saved from unless we share with them what they're saved from. On the other hand, in contrast to this very grim picture, starting in verse 20, let your eyes glance there, verse 20 of Ephesians 4 and following, there is here now a gracious testimony Concerning the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the truly regenerate person. That is because Christians have received new spiritual life by grace and through faith. We must walk differently because we are different. In other words, true gospel belief demands true gospel behavior. And what God demands, He enables. True gospel belief enables gospel behavior. And these aren't optional electives for the college of each Christian. They are mandatory core responsibilities. Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 4, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And I love how our There's no exclamation mark in the Greek, but uh, in our English Bibles there is. Paul is not asking a question, did you learn Christ this way? He says, that is not the way you learn Christ. 
And he knows it because he taught it. (laughs) We'll come to that in just a few moments. You see, instead of resembling spiritually dead people, Paul here reminds the Ephesians of now, conversely, we had three grim facts. Now we have three vital lessons behind their spiritual progress or walk in the church. First, those who are genuinely in Christ are called, not suggested, but commanded to put off the old self. This is a a very common analogy in several of Paul's letters. Colossians 3 comes to mind as well, of taking off the outer garment. You are are called to change robes from filthiness and wickedness to righteousness and holiness. Take off the old self with its decrepit, decaying, and deceitful desires, Paul says. And then secondly, those who have placed their trust in Jesus are to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. And here's something interesting. We're called to actively put off the old self, but here the verb is passive. We are called to let some outside force press upon us to renew the spirit of our minds. This is not something we can do ourselves. It's the work of the Holy Spirit Paul is getting at. So there are things that we do, and there are things that God does to make us more like Jesus. And then thirdly, those who have been changed by the gospel aren't meant to walk around unclothed. You've put off some garment. Well, you also need to put on the new self, Paul says, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Interestingly, I think there's a parallel expression of the mind, the heart, and the actions being dead, and then three commands sort of to put off, to be renewed, and to put on. There's beautiful symmetry here in this passage. Theologian Oz Guinness said, well, the Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it's true. In the second half of our passage, Paul is here fleshing out some of the good works. Go back to Ephesians 2.10, just by, you know, think of that, that God expects to be seen in His chosen, His called, His cleansed, and His Spirit-filled children. He's unpacking what he said in doctrinal form in chapter 2, beginning in in chapter 4. By the way, I was horrified the other day to open the water bill at home, only to discover that it had doubled or more since the previous quarter. Not good news. After some investigation, I discovered that the cause of the problem is that we now have three teenagers in the house. That's not really the only problem, but it works for the sermon illustration. (laughs) Five humans taking daily showers, sometimes multiple showers a day, costs quite a bit of money. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. But here's the other thing that I noticed in my investigation. Sometimes after showering, certain family members put on the very same clothes that they were wearing before they took the shower. Now, what's the point of that? Well, if I'm being honest, sometimes I do that too, (laughs) and I know you do too. We're all the same. You know that, right? Well, the point of our passage kind of gets to that grossness. The true, that, that true gospel belief in Jesus results in a radical, complete change of a genuine Christian. We don't 
wear the same robes on the other side of being washed in the blood. We are changed in our garments. But this change is not an outside-in, it's an inside-out sort of change. That is, prior to the gospel, remember, Paul has already told us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in in which we once walked following the course of this world, Ephesians 2, 2, 1 and 2. Yet now by grace we have been made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Before trusting Jesus, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Talk about bad news. But now we are chosen and precious and beloved children of God. Amen? As Romans 8, 1 and 2 declares, and these are words that we could never get over. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Simply stated, being a disciple of Jesus Christ means that we are and are becoming something different, something totally brand new in Jesus. This change brought about by grace and through faith in the gospel indicates a progressive work of God by His Spirit. To introduce maybe a new word, but for most of you not a new word, this is sanctification. God is making us more and more free from the grip and just power of sin in our lives, the spiritually stifling effects of sin. And conversely, God is making us again by the Spirit more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. And that describes in our lives a lifelong process. The Bible says... In, second, excuse me, in Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And as I've said before, that is not a freedom to do any and everything that we want to do. It is a freedom to finally be the humanity that God has made us to be. It is for that kind of blissful freedom that Christ has set us free. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So we've taken a moment to orient ourselves to the passage, and and even I've sought to explain some of what's happening in the passage. Now I want to spend the, the final 15 or so minutes applying the passage to you and I this morning. How can we apply this to our hearts and lives as disciples of Jesus Christ? What what are the takeaway lessons for us this morning? Well, first understand, and this is so important. That we should appreciate the fact, flowing out of Ephesians 4, 17 and following, that there is going to be a lifelong tension and constant struggle in our lives as believers with sin. We need to state that emphatically. St. Augustine, the hugely influential 4th century Alexandrian Christian, himself is reported to have said after his conversion, mind you, quote, I was astonished that although now I loved God, I did not persist in enjoyment of Him. And then Augustine prayed, Your beauty drew me to you. But soon I was dragged from you by my own weight, and in my dismay I plunged again into the things of this world, as though I had sensed the fragrance of the fair, but was not yet able to eat of it. Close quote. Augustine knew. 
the struggle and war with sin. And he's not alone. Fast forward several hundred years to the German reformer of the 16th century, the great reformer Martin Luther, who wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon saying, quote, I sit here at ease, hardened and unfeeling, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. It comes to this, and this is Luther writing, I should be a fire in the spirit. In reality, I'm a fire in the flesh with lust, with laziness, sleepiness. I really can't stand it any longer. Pray for me, I beg you, for in my seclusion, here I am submerged in sins. Close quote. That was Luther, friends. I heard just this week someone say that spiritual maturity is not growing to need Jesus less. But spiritual maturity is growing to rely and depend upon Jesus more. As we grow deeper in Christ, we grow more desperate for Christ. Consider the mighty Paul himself, who testified and wrote of the bitter inward battle of all believers as they fight and struggle with sin. Yes, Romans 7, we're going to Romans 7. Verses 21 and following, Paul writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, my spirit, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he famously exclaims, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And here's the declaration. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who among us today does not know that bitter battle with unbelief and with sin? We all know it. So listen, the first point of application is simply this, that we should expect, along with the Ephesians, to struggle, this struggle to be our personal, present-day struggle with sin as well. We need to feel the tension. I was reminded this week in my study that the Apostle Paul, I alluded to this a few minutes ago, spent almost three entire years teaching the Word of God to the Ephesians. Yes, this same group of people, Paul was their pastor for three years. It gives me comfort from time to time. This is the longest, it seems, that Paul had spent in any one particular place and with with any one particular church, teaching the Ephesians the Word of God. Some scholars allege, based on early manuscript evidence of the book of Acts, that Paul spent as much as five hours in the middle of every day teaching the Ephesian church in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Imagine that, friends. Some of us have a hard time staying awake for a 40-minute sermon one time a week. This would have been the equivalent of 50 years of three 40-minute sermons every week. They got the word from Paul. Can you imagine that? Sign me up. I'd I'd gladly step aside for Paul to come in and be our pastor. Absolutely. Sign me up. So then what changed? 
If Paul is teaching and the Spirit is applying, why are they drifting? What changed? Because it's every man and woman's battle. Sin lurks at the door. None of us are exempt. Prepare for war. Prepare for war. That's part of Paul's point. To be a Christian is to know the poison of sin and the preciousness of the Savior. That is simply the case. We should expect our walk of faith, our new life in Christ, to be a knockdown, drag out brawl with sinful behaviors and troublesome beliefs. Do not be shocked when you fall into sin, but run home in repentance. A growing awareness and uncomfortableness with sin, the flesh, and the world is a sign not of immaturity, but of Christian maturity. It's a sign that you're growing up, that you're not fitting in any longer in the world. This should be every Christian's battle and experience of faith. I pray it's true of you this morning. But now secondly, and here's another helpful application point I hope for you and I this morning actually has to do with how we can view others who are currently still outside of saving faith in Christ and in the church. In other words, these very verses ought to encourage us to have something that I would call gospel empathy towards unbelievers by virtue of understanding that they, in their, their true nature, their natural man, They are devoid of the life of God, and they can't help themselves. Do you ever find yourself wagging your head and scratching your head at unbelievers acting like unbelievers? Why is that surprising to us? What should be shocking to us is when the church acts like the world, not when the world acts like the world. And that's part of Paul's point Here as well. Spiritually dead people can't heal themselves. They need a resurrection specialist. And thank goodness, as of Easter, we have one. His name is Jesus. So Paul describes the fallenness of humanity simply as flawed and futile and fleshly. This is the natural condition of man, and they can't self-correct He says in verse 18 of chapter 4, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And that's not a pejorative term. That's a statement of fact. They simply do not know God. Due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's bad. And yet we... Can you believe our neighbors? Can you believe co-workers? Is that how Christ viewed you? Certainly not. The point here is that man's condition is likened to a spiritual train wreck of utter depravity. We can't look away, but when we look, we need to look with compassion. Just take, for instance, that the Greek term here, porosis, behind the English phrase, hardness of heart, One commentator said this term indicates a stony, a petrified condition, like that of once living, growing trees that have been petrified over the course of centuries. This emphasizes the impenetrable nature of a person's cold, calloused heart towards God. They have a heart of stone, according to the prophets. 
By the way, this is the very word from which we get the medical condition osteoporosis. A painful hardening or brittleness of the bones. And again, the point is that non-Christians have a naturally uncurable moral and spiritual condition. And they are at war against God and and they are dead in their sins. So this second takeaway I submit to you is that while it is true that people who don't believe in God don't believe because they don't want to believe in God, they are utterly culpable for their guilt and sin before God. It is not God's fault. That is, their wrong-headedness results in hard-heartedness and consequently unrestrained wickedness against the gracious commands and character of God. Even still, even still, we in Christ are called to view the lost with compassion. Because such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 6.11 But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were made free. We need to look at the lost in the same way that Christ looked upon us. God rescued us. I wonder, what sort of relationships do you have today with unsaved people? Do you know any? Do you have relationships with even a handful of unsaved people. I'm not going to have anybody answer out loud because it might be interesting to see what the answer is. We are increasingly distancing ourselves from the very mission that Christ left us for. He saved us, He caught us, He cleansed us, and He sent us back to be a contagious believer for Christ. So we need to know the unsaved. We don't need to be contaminated, but they need to catch something from us. And that is life, life, the knowledge of Jesus. Do you know unsaved people? And when they know you, uh, do they welcome you with arm in arm just because you're one with them? There's nothing different, distinctive at odds against the way that they live. What, what is your relationship with unbelievers? Are you just one of the boys? Or do they know, you know, this guy, he, he's different. There's something weird about him. Kind of like him, but he's different than us. What is your relationship? You remember, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. He was. It's all he had to have friends with. <laughs> Everybody's a sinner, aside from the sinless son of God. The mission statement of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And praise God, He did. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech, that is your conversation, always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Peter says it well, 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I would add, when was the last time somebody asked you why you're such a hopeful, loving, gracious person? Do you live Christianity, salt and light among spiritually darkened, dead and desperate people and places of our culture? I'm convicted in this area. Join me in that conviction. Because our lives are to be living letters that the world reads, pointing to the goodness and the grace of Jesus. 
They may not read a Bible, but they do read us. The 15th century English reformer William Tyndale, famously for his uh, work of Bible translation, once said powerfully, our problem is that the heart with all the powers and affections and appetites that we have can only sin. Here's a cheery outlook from the Puritans. The only solution to this is the spirit who loosens the heart from the love of self to the freedom of living for God. In other words, point number three, we'll pick up a little um, speed here. We need a Savior outside of ourselves. So the third important takeaway from this passage, I believe, is that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and remember the gospel daily. The thought came to me this morning that it's graduation season, right? There is no commencement ceremony for the Christian that celebrates our graduation from our need for God's daily grace. No parties, no graduation parties from grace. And that's what it's getting at here. This passage points to our lifelong need for Jesus Christ and his work of the gospel. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Brothers and sisters, remember Jesus always. It sounds simple, but there's nothing more profound. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. It's my job to remind you of his work. Remember Jesus. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. See, the race of faith begins with fixing one's eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on the finish line, which is the presence of Almighty God. It is the perfection of Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Him. As the writer of Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside all the encumbrances, every weight that trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus. Have you ever tried to run? Cecil, do you coach your kids run with looking at your feet? No. Look at the finish line. Dash for the Savior. Keep your eyes on Christ and you will finish. You will finish. How do we do that? Well, we keep our eyes fixed on Christ by being daily dependent upon the Lord in prayer. We fix our eyes on Christ by being regularly, daily rooted in the Scriptures, meditating on the Word of God and daily reading the Word of God. We fix our eyes on Jesus by not forsakingly assembling of ourselves together in the church. We need each other to run this race. So every believer has this struggle with sin, this spiritual futility of the natural carnal world should induce us to Christ-like compassion and mercy upon those who don't know Jesus. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then thirdly, the moment-by-moment need that we have of new life for us as Christians is to daily fix our eyes on Christ. And this brings us to our last point. The final application is that the new life of a believer, the the walk of faith is a cooperative walk between God and between us, his child. 
I love how Paul puts God's promise to make us holy in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. He simply declares, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Some of us may feel like we are running out of gas on our way to heaven. But God is going to get us across the line. He is faithful. He will do it. Our sanctification is not accomplished independent of the Lord. God will do it, but He's designed it so that He does it with us. God is sanctifying us, often often kicking and screaming all the way to heaven. But there is a part for us to play. See, as you look at that text, verses 22 to 24, it contains three infinitives which are connected to the phrase, you were taught in Him. And these infinitives operate like commands, summarizing the whole of the Christian life. Again, very quickly, they are to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self. It's interesting that Paul uses these as, uh, again, infinitives rather than imperatives, implying, I believe, that the overwhelming majority of the work is God's, not ours. But he's working all things according to his purpose in our hearts and lives. But the point is that salvation is transformation. Salvation is transformation. We can't be in Christ without becoming like Christ. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God does not have any kids who don't look like Him. If you are in Christ, you are becoming increasingly into the image of Jesus. And if you aren't, there's reason to reconsider your profession of faith. Do not let sin linger long. Rooted out with gospel hope and Peace. Salvation is a grand synergistic, that's a fancy word meaning a cooperative work of God's Holy Spirit and our renewed heart. He does His part, we do ours in sanctification. Justification, that's a whole other ball game and a whole other sermon. God saves us by His own power apart from us. Paul admonished the Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. So how do you need to respond to today's sermon? Well, if you are not in Christ, and I would imagine somebody here is not a follower of Jesus. The Bible term that was given in this text is that you are unregenerate. You've been born once naturally, but you have not been born twice naturally and spiritually. You, my friend, need to be saved today. You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. If you are here and you are not sure, young or old, if you are a Christian, let today be your spiritual birthday. Come home to the Father. He came for you in Christ. 
But if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, maybe one way to respond to this passage is to say, God, forgive me because I am too often looking unchristianly, not as if I'm supposed to live. I look more like Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 than I do Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. If that's your story this morning, and it's all our story from time to time, your response is repentance. You need to confess afresh your guilt before God, not to get saved. If you are a Christian, you are always saved, but you need to get clean again in a relational sense by confessing before the Father. And maybe one final response for some of us this morning is we need to stop and confess how much we just simply look at the world and say we don't like the world. We, you, can, you don't have to like the world, but you are called to love it. Love the world, meaning love them with the truth of the gospel. So whatever response the Holy Spirit is moving your heart to make, I trust and pray you'll do so. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty and gracious Father, we come again to the end of another feeding of the family from your word, and we are full, Lord. In some ways, we are satisfied. But there's a reason we've been fed, and it is that we might go and now exercise our faith. And even one immediate exercise is that exercise of repentance. So, Lord, I pray whatever response, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give grace for the moment. Give momentary grace to respond in the way that you are prompting each of us to do. Lord, I pray that you will continue your good work of making me and us more like Jesus for your great glory and for the good of this church and community and world. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.